Well, we live in a Christian world that speaks much, increasingly, in fact, about the notion of thriving. I hear pastors say things like, I want my wife or my children to thrive in the ministry. In fact, I heard one church planter talk about how he bought his wife a big diamond ring so she could thrive in the ministry. I hear missions orgs saying, we want our missionaries to thrive in the field. I hear Christians talking awful lot about thriving in general these days. Now, now what does it mean to thrive? To, to thrive means to grow vigorously or to flourish. To grow vigorously or to flourish. So we all want things to thrive or to flourish, right? It's good when your children thrive physically morally and spiritually it's good when your marriage thrives in other words lives and grows it's good when the grace of god is at work in you in such a manner that your faith thrives or flourishes or grows however there's been a a kind of subtle turn a subtle turn in the use of that word that concerns me It's a turn in the use of that word toward a kind of prosperity gospel. More and more it seems that to thrive doesn't just mean to grow or to flourish spiritually, but to thrive is to become extraordinary in some way. Casting Crowns actually wrote a song called Thrive. Some of you may have heard it. In many ways, the song is fine. It doesn't say a lot, but in many ways, it's fine. And, but in the song, it makes a subtle turn that I'm seeing all over the place in ministry circles. Listen, listen to the chorus. We know we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. We were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to do more than just survive. We were made to thrive. It's fascinating how an ordinary life is insufficient for Christians now. Our lives must be extraordinary. We have to be world changers. It's not enough to faithfully survive. We must thrive. Biblically, though, biblically, to To thrive is to faithfully endure. It's not to be extraordinary, it's to endure. Look, you won't find too many books nor songs that are selling with the title, Endure. It doesn't sound particularly romantic to tell your spouse, I'm just hoping we endure this marriage together. It doesn't raise a lot of money for missionaries when a missionary says, our goal is to endure. If you asked me what the goal of our church building project is, and I told you, our goal is to provide a place where we can endure together as a church, I probably wouldn't raise a whole lot of money that way. right? What I'm supposed to do is do a series on Nehemiah and talk about building on faith. And get you all jacked up to build the wall, which we're not Jerusalem coming out of Babylonian 
exile, but that's another topic. So we know life is tough. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to build a kind of embassy. A place for Christians to come and gather so they might endure. Doesn't that sound like an exciting building project? We don't plan to change the world, and we don't plan to make your life extraordinary. We're not sure if we'll make really any impact at all. We just hope to walk together with one another through this difficult wilderness journey and help one another faithfully endure. As a building command that, excuse me, campaign, that doesn't sound particularly inspiring. I mean, we're Americans. Right? As Americans, to thrive is to conquer the world, to tame the frontier, to make our mark. It's to be extraordinary. It's to be world changers. And listen, I, I don't know too many people who are more patriotic than I am. But with that said, I want to argue that we should not mix our American culture with our Christianity in an unhelpful manner that makes something out of the Christian life that the Bible never says it is. When we go into other cultures and we do that, that's called syncretism, mixing of one religion with another and coming up with a kind of third thing. It happens here too, folks, not just over there. I want to argue this morning that for Christians, to thrive is to faithfully endure. That's what it is. The book of Hebrews was written to Christians who were facing much persecution and suffering. Life was difficult. It was hard. And clinging to Christ could become nearly impossible as you're assaulted by the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil. Hebrews speaks to these Christians as those who are like Israel in the wilderness. You remember Israel's wilderness journey? Israel was brought out of slavery in Egypt. God had conquered Pharaoh and redeemed them and brought them into the wilderness. They were headed to the promised land. But if you remember those wilderness journeys, they weren't comfortable. Often Israel's complaining, why can't we just go back to Egypt? There's leeks and a variety of food, and it's not just this manna that that drops out of heaven every day. We're tired of this. This is difficult. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We're going to die here in the wilderness. And they march forward toward the promised land. And that promised land was theirs by promise, but not yet by actual possession. Yet the Lord was with them. In fact, Christ was with them in the wilderness. And the apostle is telling the Hebrew Christians, you are like that wilderness generation. You're like them. You were enslaved to Satan and sin and death. The Lord Jesus came and conquered your foe he redeemed you on the cross and your baptism pictures this when you're baptized you're like israel going into the red sea and emerging the other on the other side redeemed it pictures you being redeemed from that old fallen creation that old fallen man where you were enslaved 
And it pictures you being made new, being redeemed, being saved in a new creation, a new kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. And now as those who are redeemed, you're promised a new heavens and a new earth. They are yours by promise. But, like Israel in the wilderness, they are not yet yours by possession. So you're in the wilderness. That's where Hebrews, this letter, leaves you. You're in the wilderness, looking forward to heavenly glory, but not yet there. And for now, you must endure in the wilderness. Christ is with you in the wilderness. And you must not lose sight of him in this wilderness. They, the old covenant saints, they had Moses and the old covenant. Christ was there in the wilderness with them, but he was there with them through types and shadows. Now, you have Christ incarnate. You have him crucified and resurrected. They were waiting for this day, but this day is yours. You have the new covenant in his blood. You have the Holy Spirit applying his benefits to you. You have Christ in heaven interceding for you. You have it far better than they did. And you must endure. That's what the apostles is teaching us. That's what he's teaching the Hebrews. He is teaching them to look at the incredible new covenant blessings they have in Christ and to faithfully endure in the wilderness as they await the reward. They await the reward. So how do you endure? It's an interesting question for me to ask on the day that we start a building campaign, isn't it? Really, have our meeting. What was the sermon about before the building campaign meeting? How do we endure? How do you endure? Because even if we build a building, we're plopping that building right down in the middle of the wilderness. It's not the new heavens and the new earth. It's not where our hope lies. So how do you endure? This morning we'll look at two means that the apostle gives you. So two means he gives you to endure. The first means that he gives you is to remember God's grace in you. Hear that? Remember God's grace in you. And we're going to look at that in verses 32 through 34. The second means he gives for endurance is to preserve your confidence, to preserve your confidence in God's grace for you. God's grace for you. We'll look at that in verses 35 through 39. So let's look at the first point. The first means. To remember God's grace in you. Look at verse 32. And we'll just look at the first part of it. Hebrews 10, verse 32. Remember the former days. Remember the former days. When after you were enlightened. We'll talk about the rest of that in a minute. He is telling them to remember. To remember what? To remember when the Lord saved them. Remember the former days when after you were enlightened. Remember when the gospel came to you and you were born anew. When your eyes were opened to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
Remember your conversion to Christ. This is not a work that you did. It's passive. You were enlightened. God did this in you. You didn't enlighten yourself. This is a work done to you and in you. You were trotting along, if you will, in your life of sin, of spiritual death, of blindness. You were looking toward worldly concerns. You were looking after your own desires. Then you heard the gospel. You heard it. I do not mean, I I want you to understand this. I do not mean you heard the gospel this way. Christ died for sinners. That's not what I mean. I mean you heard the gospel this way. Christ died for sinners, even for you. Christ spoke to you by the Spirit and said, My Father doesn't just love the world. He loves even you. I did not just die for sinners. I died even for you. It is not just that I forgive. It is that I forgive you. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your hand in Hebrews 10 and look over at 1 Peter. You just have James and then 1 Peter as you're going toward Revelation. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. He's just talked in the end of chapter 1 as he's continuing about being born again by the imperishable word, the living word of God. And then he goes on, chapter 2, to describe that to some degree. And in verse 9, you get this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who did what? Who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, in the past you were enlightened. There was a point at which you were in darkness and God came and enlightened you. And you realize that the upward prize in Christ is better than the things of this world. Just better than the things of this world. Your eyes were set there on Him. him. And what he's saying is, don't forget that. The author to Hebrews is saying, don't forget that. Don't think that by going back to Israel, to those days when you had the temple, when you were there, the temple's still around, but when you were there and you had the priesthood and that was all yours and you had this national identities, you know, to those good old days, don't go back there. You were in darkness. You did not yet know Christ. And the Holy Spirit came and enlightened you so that you saw that Christ, not just He died, but He died for you. And you were saved. And you were looking forward to the prize. Look, it might be a message we need to hear more and more and more right now in our current moment. Christians are wanting to flee California, which to some degree I entirely understand and sympathetic to. But they're wanting to flee it as if they misunderstand their purpose in this world. Why did God leave you here? 
Why did he leave you here? Why are you still here? You're here to make Christ known. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You aren't here to find the most comfortable place to live where people look like you and the politics are yours and the government likes you and all's going well for you. I'm not telling you it's wrong to move to another state. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm saying if your eyes are set on that because you want comfort in the here and now, your eyes are set in the wrong place. You've forgotten the reason you're even here. If God wanted you to live a comfortable life outside the wilderness, he would have taken you home by now. But he left you here. Don't forget, he enlightened you. He saved you. And he did so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's why he did it. And what was the evidence of your enlightenment? What was the evidence of your enlightenment? The evidence was, um, or it came in, your love for all the saints. That's where it came. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 32 again. But recall the former, or remember the former days, when, after you enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. You endured. You endured. A hard struggle with sufferings. You endured. You did not lose faith. You persevered. You kept looking to Christ. And you endured what? A hard struggle. This word struggle is the Greek word um, from which we get the word athletics. In athletics, there's always some kind of a contest, right? You push and pull. The athlete who wins is most often the athlete who competes at 100% from beginning to end. If you want to win the contest, you give it 100% till the end. Don't give it 110%. That's, nobody does that. I don't even know why we say that. It's stupid. 100% is all you got. You don't have 110 or 120 or 10,000% or anything. You got 100%. Let's just get rid of that junk from our vocabulary altogether. So you give it 100% from beginning to end. From beginning to end. The athlete who wins has a hard struggle against his opponent. He's endured to the end of the contest. Well, these Christians endured in a difficult contest against the world and its persecution. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 33. Sometimes, here comes the explanation of the hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes, and sometimes being partners <clears throat> with those so treated. These Christians suffered being, notice that language, being publicly exposed. That's the Greek word from which we get the word theater. Right? They were made theater of. They were made a public spectacle. They were reproached, disparaged disgraced, insulted, reviled publicly. And they were afflicted. They were oppressed, that affliction. They were oppressed. They were mistreated. They were abused. They were imprisoned. Look at Hebrews 10.34. Here's the explanation of 
that. For you had compassion on those in prison. Let me, let me make a quick statement about the imprisonment language you find in Scripture, particularly here and in Matthew 25 in the Olivet Discourse, where you're caring for those who are in prison. I was naked and I was in prison, etc. You didn't visit me. You guys know the, that language. And here in prison. In both texts, the prisoners are not people in prison for murder and rape and theft and whatever. I'm not saying don't do ministry to those folks. That's not my point. In both texts, the prisoners are those imprisoned for the faith. Those imprisoned for the faith. They were Christians who were imprisoned as a kind of persecution. And to visit them is to put yourself in danger because now you'll be identified with them. Those prisons did not offer blankets when it was cold. They did not offer food. They did not offer water. They didn't offer a library or degree programs or whatever else we offer now. They didn't offer any of that. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What he means is, you would go to the prison to visit someone, to care for them, to bring them a blanket, to bring them food, to bring them water, someone you knew who was imprisoned for the faith, and while you were there because you were identified with them, your own property would be plundered. They would come in and steal your stuff, burn down your house, and you joyfully accepted it. You didn't look for a red state to move to. You joyfully accepted it. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because because you had a better possession and an abiding possession, a heavenly possession, because you knew you were a people in the wilderness. They stood with Christ And they were publicly humiliated and abused for it. And not only did they go to prison, but they cared for other Christians who were in prison. They exposed themselves to being known for being one of those Christians and thus subject to hostility. In the first century, the only people who had freedom of religion were the Jews. Did you guys know that? You had to bow your knee and declare Caesar as Lord. Caesar is the son of God. Caesar Augustus actually had coins inscribed with him, naming himself the son of God. You, You had to profess that Caesar is Lord in that way, unless you were a first century Jew, in which case they were known to be monotheists to the point where they would rather die than do that, and it would cause disruption. So the Roman government sort of gave them a pass because they didn't want the disruption from the Jews, so they gave them, you don't have to do that. The Christians, however were initially identified with the Jews, and so they were sort of given a pass. But over time, the Jews kept saying, they're not one of us. They're worshiping this dude named Jesus. Um, And so the persecution kicked in pretty heavy on the Christians. In this way, these Christians were in fact thriving. They were thriving in as much as they were enduring that persecution, looking forward to their heavenly reward. Their faithful endurance was their thriving. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. 
Jesus tells them this is the way it will be. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. In this list of Beatitudes, we have this word blessed. Makarios in the Greek, it can be translated happy. It can be translated um, flourishing, potentially. Thriving, potentially. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's presently theirs by promise. But they don't yet live there. That's why they're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is fascinating language because it completely mitigates any sort of prosperity notion of thriving. To thrive. To be happy. To be blessed is to be persecuted for righteousness sake. Is to be reviled for the name of Christ. Is to lose everything while keeping your eye on your eternal reward. Those who are blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled. And the apostle reminds these Hebrew Christians, remember how the Lord saved you and how you saw him at work in you and continue to endure. Beloved, I encourage you to remember what the Lord did in you. You will endure only if you remember God's grace in you. Reflect upon, reflect upon the evidences of God's grace in your life. Be thankful for the many ways His grace has been at work in you. And remind one another. Remind one another. Be quick to tell your brothers and sisters in Christ the evidences of God's grace you see in their lives. Like the apostle, I do not fear, I do not fear that many of you will become apostate, for I have seen the grace of God at work in so many of you. And that leads to my second point, the second means that are given. The second means that are given, not only to remember God's grace at work in you, but to preserve your confidence, preserve your confidence in God's grace for you. Preserve your confidence in God's grace for you. The Lord has graciously been at work in you, but first and preeminently, He was graciously at work for you. And you want to persevere in your confidence in God's grace for you. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your confidence. To throw away is to discard or to reject your confidence. Rather, you want to cling to, to preserve, to hold on to 
Your confidence. So the question is this. What is your confidence? What is your confidence? We know your confidence, it says, your confidence has a great reward. But what is your confidence? Remember I've told you that this section of Hebrews is an exhortation. Hebrews is a letter, some scholars argue formerly a sermon that's been put in written form that has exposition, here's the doctrine, followed by exhortation, here's now what you do with it. We're in a section of exhortation, a section of what you do with it. But it's built upon an an exposition that goes from Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 through Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18. And that whole section of exposition that lasts five chapters is actually bracketed. There's an inclusio around it in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 and Hebrews 10, 19 through 21. And I want to look there. So look first at Hebrews 4 because this bracketing sums up this entire section from 5 through 10. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect that has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, notice this, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What is your confidence? Your confidence is the person of Jesus Christ. We, because we have a great high priest, one who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, because we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, who was tempted in every way yet without sin, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Your confidence, chapter 4, is in the person of Christ. Your confidence, chapter 10, 19-21, is in the priestly work of Christ. His priestly work on your behalf. You can enter by his blood. Jesus and his work or your confidence. Trusting him has a great reward. Think of that. He did everything. He did everything. And yet you receive a great reward. So we cling to our confidence, who is the person and work of Christ. We rest in Christ. We trust Him and lean upon Him and His work. We must endure, hear this, in our trust in Christ. Look at Hebrews 10.36. Hebrews 10.36. Here comes an explanation. For you have need of endurance. Don't throw away your confidence. Who is Christ in His work? For we have, you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is a call 
to persevering faith. God has commanded us to trust Him to the end. Keep your hand there and look over at Hebrews 3 and verse 14. Hebrews 3 and verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original, what? Confidence, firm to the end. We need to hold on to Christ's person and work until the end. Until the end. This persevering faith will show up in our daily lives. It will bear fruit. We will endure hardships as we joyfully look to the reward. We will continue to draw nearer to Him in the fullness of faith. Verse 22. We will continue, of chapter 10, we will continue to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Verse 23 of chapter 10. We will continue to consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not forsaking the gathering ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. We'll continue in persevering faith. But please don't misunderstand. I I think this is where we start to steer into a misunderstanding. Our confidence is not in our good works nor in our diligent efforts to persevere. Your confidence is not in your diligent efforts to persevere. The point here is not a call to endure in your own merit or by your own ability. The point here is to endure in trusting the merit of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your perseverance is not found in how well you did in establishing your goodness before the Lord. It's not found there. But in whether you rested on Christ. Persevering faith rests on Christ. It's a gift of God that rests on Christ. And obedience and imitation of Christ follows on the heels of trusting Him. Obedience is a companion to faith. It springs forth from faith. It is the fruit of faith. It is the believer's joy to obey as he honors the Lord who has already rescued, redeemed, and adopted him. So our confidence is in Christ and his work. We trust him. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. Hebrews 10, verses 37 through 38. This is where I'm going to ask you to look a little bit at the Old Testament with me. For, here comes the explanation. You, yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is interesting. This is a quotation that ties together Isaiah 26.20 and Habakkuk 2.3-4. The yet a little while, that little phrase, comes from Isaiah 26.20. The rest of the quotation comes from Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. Why does he combine these two texts together and use them this way? Why does the apostle do that? Well, both texts, both Isaiah 26, 20 and this text in Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4 are both talking about Judah, 
being under Babylonian exile for their sin. They're both dealing with that. Further, both texts are dealing with God disciplining his people for their sin and with God promising to destroy his enemies. Both texts are dealing with that. The Babylonian exile of Judah, in which God is disciplining them for their sin that they might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and in which God is promising to destroy their enemies, the wicked Babylonian empire that's come against them. Further, last one, both texts, both Isaiah 26.20 and Habakkuk 2.3-4 point forward to the coming Messiah and his work, to the coming Christ and his work. The Greek words right there, yet a little while in verse 37, are exactly reproduced from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in Isaiah 26.20. So let's look at Isaiah 26 together. Keep your hand there and turn over to Isaiah 26, and you'll get a little bit of the background. And look at verse 20. Uh, We'll start in verse 16, just to give you a little bit of context and read through verse 20. Verse 16, Isaiah 26. Isaiah is almost smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 26 and verse 16. O Lord, in distress they sought you. This is the people of Judah seeking the Lord in distress. They poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. You're going to pick up this discipline language again in Hebrews 12. The Father disciplines those whom he loves. When your discipline was upon them, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. In other words, we were writhing and crying in pains like a pregnant woman about to give birth because, Lord, you had us under your disciplinary hand as the Bab- under the Babylonian exile. Now look what he goes on to say. We were pregnant, we ride, but we have given birth to wind. That's not good, by the way. We've accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your, now look what he goes on to say. Check this out. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. They're pointing forward to a resurrection. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves, here's the phrase, for a little while until the fury has passed by. In other words, yet a little while. God's justice will come upon the people who have been persecuting the Hebrew Christians. God's justice will come when the Christ comes. Yet a little while, the resurrection will come. Christ is the first fruits of that. Yet a little while, just keep trusting Christ. It's coming, but look at Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk, well, I'll start in verse one, chapter 1, actually. The point here being God's wrath is coming against his enemy, but God's deliverance resurrection life in fact is coming for his people now let's look at god dealing with the people in the babylonian exile look at habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1 
The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He saw this oracle. Now listen to what he says. Here comes Habakkuk's complaint. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrongs? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You all know this pain. When you're suffering and you wonder where God is. Do you even care? Are you going to be just? Here, Israel is suffering under Babylonian exile, the hand of wicked Babylonians. And he's Habakkuk on behalf of Israel saying, where are you, Lord? Where are you? Now this context is being used intentionally because you're dealing with Hebrew Christians who are being persecuted and imprisoned, who are he's calling to endure, who might just be struggling with the notion of, where are you, God? Are you going to be just? Look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Habakkuk is going to complain again. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, that's the Babylonians, as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. That language of O Rock and O Lord is coming from Deuteronomy 32, but I don't have time to look there. You, who are of pure purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to the dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Here's what he's complaining about. Lord, how can you stand by and let these wicked nations, particularly this wicked nation Babylon, continue to conquer us and then worship their false gods thinking their false gods have delivered this to them? Now here's the Lord's answer, verse 2 of chapter 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, sort of like the Ten Commandments in that way, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits, now notice this language, it awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow... Wait for it. That's the language being picked up in Hebrews 10. If it seems, if what seems slow? If the appointed time seems slow, wait for it. It, the appointed time, will surely come. It, the appointed time, will not delay. Now look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now the apostle comes in and 
changes the language of the appointed time, if you look at Hebrews 10 and verse 37, to the coming one. He swaps out the appointed time for the language of the coming one. In other words, the coming of the appointed time that you're waiting for and the coming of the Messiah, according to the apostle, are referencing the same historical event. The coming time that you're waiting for, that appointed time, and the coming Messiah are referenced to the same event. That's why you hear language like this in Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. Hear that? He will come to deliver his people, and he will destroy his enemies. This is the context of Habakkuk. From inside the people of God, much sin and injustice has prevailed, and they were being disciplined by the Lord. From outside the people of God, they were being attacked by the wicked Babylonians. In other words, the Lord was using the Babylonians as discipline for his people. Christ would soon come and destroy his enemies and save his friends. And he's following the Septuagint in Hebrews 10.38, when it says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The ESV in, um, in Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the reason chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk and Hebrews 10, verse 38, read a little differently, is the English Standard Version, as well as almost every modern English translation, is translating the Hebrew Masoretic text, the Hebrew text from the Old Testament. And so um, we read, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. But the LXX, the Septuagint, has, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but my righteous one shall live by faith. So the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is what the apostles using in Hebrews chapter 10, and English translators are using the Hebrew Old Testament to translate Hebrew, uh, Habakkuk 2. And so that's why they read differently. But what I want you to understand is they're not saying different things. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is clearly working off a different Greek or Hebrew manuscript to some degree than we have. But listen to what they say. To shrink back is to become puffed up. It's the same thing. How do I say that? If you shrink back from trusting Christ, then you become what? Puffed up, proud, self-reliant. If you become self-reliant, trusting in your own righteousness, then you've become puffed up and self-confident, and God takes no pleasure in you. However, if you continue to trust in Christ, then you'll be counted righteous. The Christian life is always a life of faith in Christ. Please hear that. The Christian life is always a life of faith in Christ. You never move past Christ your righteousness. It isn't like, well, I trust and lean upon and rest on Christ my righteousness at the beginning of my Christian life, but as I grow in holiness, I can look to myself. No, if you shrink back, If you become puffed up, the Lord takes no pleasure in you. In fact, 
if you understand the Christian life correctly or properly, all that happens as you grow in maturity, as you're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, is you become ever more convinced that Christ is your righteousness, that Christ is your only hope, and you trust in Him more and more. The Christian life is never a looking to your own righteousness. It's never a looking to your own good works. And the apostle is confident that the Hebrew Christians are the people who endure or who have enduring faith in Christ. So look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 39. But we, we, notice he picks himself up again here. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Sovereign grace, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. May we never be those who look away from Christ and to ourselves, but always be those who look to Him. Always. We are those who have looked to him in the past. We are those who look to him now. And I believe we will be those who will look to him forever. And as those who do, I hope we are those who will always sing, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless Look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Inasmuch as this remains our song, we will faithfully endure and so receive our great reward.